Here's another interesting episode to talk about. <clears throat> Didn't I just... I feel like I just talked about this, how I walk into an episode thinking, Aha! Will my opinion change? Well, my opinion did change this time around. Downwards, weirdly enough. I'll explain why, don't worry. But this is still a good episode. It's still among my favorites in TNG, you know, in the top 30 or whatever. One of the things I find funny about this episode, though, is that they had four drafts of this episode before they got to the actual final draft. <laughs> See, this was a spec script. Yeah, I know. Uh, one of dozens that was tossed in by the actual original writer. And then, you know, shotgunning episodes at Star Trek. This one was one that was picked up because Pillar found the concept fascinating. And if I could pause to talk about that for a moment. I agree. The concept is absolutely engaging to me. Because if it's one of those weird things, at least I've noticed among Star Trek fans and you know my friends who are also Star Trek fans, that everyone just kind of assumes that First Contact's a big deal when it comes to Star Trek in general and the Federation in specific. And it is, but we don't really cover it all that often. It's been mentioned. It's, it's often been a side topic for the main plot of any given episode. But really, it hasn't come up a lot, even in TOS, and it only really came up one other time, functionally, in TNG, and that was Who Watches the Watchers back in Season 3. So having an entire episode devoted to it, absolutely in favor of that. We don't necessarily need to do more, but having it be the focal point of an entire episode, yes, absolutely. But it just wasn't working. No one could get the script to work. And the reason why, and honestly, this is one of those obvious in hindsight situations, because I, I could picture being stuck in the same problem. Like, oh, why did, I don't know, it's just not interesting, it's not engaging. Is because it was being told from the crew's perspective. That may sound like a strange thing, but actually sit back and think about it. Not counting Discovery which has effectively changed the rules. How many other Star Trek episodes are there where the predominant episode viewpoint is not the crew? It doesn't happen particularly often. In fact, I can only think of one other example off the top of my head ever. Now, I'm, I'm not exactly a definitive source here, but the one that came to my mind was uh, Distant Origin over on Voyager, where we have the perspective of the Saurians, or not the Saurians, the, the Voth for a while there, right? That's about it. That's all I got. So if anybody else has any other examples, I'm listing because it's a rare phenomenon. And I started thinking about that and I was like, huh. Because honestly, I don't think this episode really would be that engaging if we just told it from the crew's perspective. And apparently everyone else agreed, given the problems they were having with the script. And I started to think how interesting it is that a lot of my favorite Star Trek episodes tend to be perspective episodes. Ones where they are basically telling an otherwise ordinary story, but shifting the perspective slightly so that we get a different viewpoint of it. I'm very famous for... I shouldn't say that I'm actually the opposite of famous, but I often say and use the example of Lower Decks as an example of an episode which really just took an idea and ran with it. And it really is actually kind of a boring episode. I shouldn't say boring, but a normal episode, except for the fact that it's done from a different perspective. That's what really adds to the the, the fleshing out of that. And, I, I mean, I call it Lower Deck stuff nowadays in general when it comes to analyzing other works of fiction. So the idea of seeing this from the perspective of these people worked out great. And, as ever, Star Trek lives and breathes on its guest stars. This was actually a really expensive episode. They had... Uh, I want to say five total guest stars. Uh, the woman from Cheers, whose name I didn't write down. 
uh, the the doctor who was good, the other doctor who was okay, the guest doctor, she wasn't really that great. And then we had, so I'm actually up to six here, because then we had, I wrote these ones down, George Cole, who played the Chancellor, Carolyn Seymour, who played uh, Yale, the Minister of Space, and then Michael Ensign, who played Krola. He's actually been in several other Star Trek roles after this point, actually. And And so we have a fairly large guest cast, expensive, and then we have the fact that they insisted... Uh, Cliff, who directed this episode, Cliff Bull, who directed this episode, it was Cliff Bull, right? I should pull this up. I actually want to read something quote for quote from this anyways. Uh, mentioned the idea... Hang on. It is Cliff Bull. It's Cliff Bull right there. That they wanted to make... How do I phrase this? They wanted to make the episode work but they were having issues with the sets and the props because Paramount, obviously, any television studio has multiple props that they can just draw upon, multiple sets that are just there and are, like, generic. You know, you can use them or repurpose them for whatever, for obvious cost-saving reasons. But they didn't want to just draw sets and props from the rest of the, mo- the lot. They wanted to actually do something to make it look sufficiently alien while still looking very, very relatable to us actual humans who are watching it. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Uh, I bring that up right here at the, in my notes. I was just making sure I wrote it down. I'm going I'm to underline it really quick just to make sure that I don't skip that because it's an important point. But I want to talk about that perspective thing again really quick because, so Star Trek has basically a rule book of what you can and can't do. Now that's true for most franchises, so that's not exactly anything new. One of the rules for Star Trek was the fact that you cannot change the point of view from the crew. Now, I, I, like I just mentioned, and this is, I'm just going to quote Michael Pillar here. Our rules told us we never have open shows, and we wrote the first two drafts. It's actually four drafts, as I just mentioned. From our point of view, and I realized it wasn't working. The thing that was holding us back was the rule, and I'm very much a supporter of the rules of Gene's universe, but I also love to break them if they're in the interest of the show. So I went to Rick, Rick Berman, and said, even though I know he doesn't like to break format, this could be a special show if he let me write it from the alien point of view. Cool. So, Michael, I've disagreed with Michael Pillar on many things, but this is not one of them. I I agree. This is definitely the right call. Here's the interesting part. You guys know I like to bash Rick Berman, although I do give him credit where credit is due. But, and I quote, Rick allowed us to, hang on, actually, I'm sorry, wrong rhyme. He did, as in he allowed us to do it, as long as I let everyone know that we weren't going to ever break this rule again. That's, I wanted to share that quote, because that is just Rick Berman in a nutshell, isn't it, right there? Okay, I'll let you break the rules this one time. <sighs> I'm sorry. Anyways, moving on. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get some flack for that opinion. I, I, Lord knows I did back in... Uh, oh, I can't think of the name of the episode. Worf and the Kid, back in Season 3. <sighs> the Bonding. Lord knows I got some flack for that, and that's fine. I, I actually like the fact that we disagree, as I've said many times. So by all means, give me flack for that, because I deserve it, because I'm being honest with you. I, I don't agree with, with rules being inflexible laws when it comes to making a TV show, at least within reason. Like, a rule like, you know, people are better and no horrible, disgusting awfulness. Yeah, I'm, I'm with that. A rule about the camera should never leave the crew, that's a weird one to me. I don't even understand that rule. Never mind accept it. Anywho, <clears throat> there's an interesting scene. A lot of the script, it's funny, you could see, tell this, this script had issues because when it shows up with the script credits, it's like teleplay by five people. 
and then the actual script by someone else, or actually two other people, I think, and it was just, whoa! You always know an episode's been through the ringer. Usually that's a bad sign. Um, but there's a lot of surprisingly smart exposition that happens in the first five or six minutes of the episode, give or take. Uh, the mention of the mob, the demonstrations, uh, the discussion about his digits, his heart being in the wrong place, little stuff like that. It's all smart stuff to get across all the information it needs to pretty quickly. There's also a tiny little line that's thrown in right towards the beginning where someone mentions, it's all these space flights, they're attracting aliens. From all that information and the title of the episode, we get everything we need to know about the premise, just bam, right there in the teaser. So, this obviously this planet is on the cusp of the first contact point. They've already started doing manned space flights. They've already, you know, they're... There are people who are against this. There is some social disorder, and people are uncertain about it. And they don't know that aliens exist. They suspect, but they suspect in the same way we do in real life. So, you know, no, 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 nothing concrete. Not counting all of us, of course, who've been with you this whole time. Don't worry, we're, we're not, we're not, we're not your enemies. It's okay. And of course, the different biology thing, all that fun stuff. And Riker. <laughs> I like this because I talked about this before. I don't remember the episode anymore, but there was an episode where Riker basically just kind of started being good at actually doing diplomatic you know, interactions with other races. And I mentioned it then because it was going to be a recurring trend henceforth that Riker was actually a good point man for social uh, context or interactions uh, on an po official, political, or diplomatic level with other people. And this is another good example of that. He is actually, he pretty smoothly slides into the role, despite the fact that he's recent here, which means he did his homework and, he, you know, he memorized all the facts he needed to. And remember, he's only here to coordinate. The Enterprise only showed up recently. The other people have been here for years. None of them got caught. <laughs> now, we could speculate on how Riker himself got caught. But there is a flaw with the Riker thing. I want to just save that for later, though. Is that okay? Now... Then we see uh, that the space minister is actually Commander Terrace, which is fascinating for anybody who's played Star Trek Online. I'm sorry, I'm making a joke. It's the same actress. <laughs> but there's this great bit where she mentions that they're going to start, you know, she's basically giving the speech on exactly how the warp tests are going to start going. And Krola, the bad guy, we'll talk about that later too, decides to bring up, well, and then what? I found that statement very amusing. Okay, we've managed to go faster than light. Then what? That's a valid statement to be asked, but that, the way he says that is so hysterical. Like, whoop-de-doo, we managed to break the light speed barrier. Woo-hoo. Like, that's some minor accomplishment that isn't going to fundamentally change the nature of how their infrastructure and society works. They mention social reforms and a concern over the change and removal from a traditional way of life. Now, what I like about this scene, and what I like about this whole script, really, is, and I'm just going to go ahead and say this now, there are no bad guys. Even Krola is, I guess the word I want to use is misguided. I have difficulty attaching the word evil to him. He is definitely the antagonist of the work. He is definitely the one who is working against what we, or I, that is to say the heroes, are in favor of. But to call him evil or villainous is something that I have, I have difficulty accomplishing. This is a man who is legitimately terrified of the future, of change, and is a traditionalist. Now, <laughs> I make no mistake or, or hiding of the fact that I'm not much of a traditionalist person myself in real life. But that doesn't make traditionalists the bad guys, at least not by default. It depends on specific circumstances and individual you know, slices of exactly what they're wanting, how they're wanting what they're doing, etc. You know, people are not so easy as to be labeled by a single word, after all. 
And thus, I like this approach to him effectively being, you know, the antagonist, while basically just really legitimately believing in his cause without the kind of rancor and malice that would usually come along with that. Now, the funny thing is, ultimately, and, and uh, Durkin, Chancellor Durkin, comes across this in his own right. He says it flat out. People like Krola are the problem, but they're not the problem because they hate us or fear us or because they want to drag society into the dregs or try to ruin people or destroy people or whatever. They are the enemy in the same sense that they are the enemy specifically of progress, and there is a sufficient number of them as to cause concern. In other words, it's a very gray, reasonable, logical, in-depth approach to things. We usually think of change and progress as a good thing, and with good reason. But it's also worth noting that too much change, too much progress, in too short of a time would cause severe issues. Society just doesn't... I like to think of it as societal momentum. And whether that's an official term or not, I have no idea. And whether societal, societal momentum is something that's acceptable or not is a matter of opinion, which I'm not willing to comment on. But it is a very <laughs> demonstrable reality, especially in real life. And so the idea that these people have their own societal momentum that's just kind of lurching forward into this new era, that basically that their tech has advanced faster than their society, which is what we're presented, makes perfect sense. And Durkin's final decision was probably the correct decision, whether it was the right one or wrong. And in fact, before we go any further, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Do you think Durkin, Chancellor Durkin, made the correct decision? to go ahead and hold his people back in order to effect a more gradual shift in policy, teaching, environment, you know, redirecting resources and effort away from space and towards the internal structure in order to try and make a society that would then be prepared for change and progress? Or do you think he should have ripped the Band-Aid off, basically, and, and accepted whatever might have come? Because there's a valid argument for both sides of that, really. Now... <laughs> The thing I wanted to comment on, especially though in the scene where we establish all of this, again, lots of good exposition in this episode, is the chairman manages to assuage Cola, Krola, excuse me, at the same time as acknowledging his position and pushing back against it. We will move forward. We will do this warp test. And then we'll pull back for a bit and we'll just kind of be back here and hesitating. I find myself wondering if the Federation would have officially approached them after the warp test, since pre-warp society is always the phrase that's used to define you know, what they don't interact with on an open level, which is, is, a, is a topic we could discuss by itself for hours, so let's just move on from that one really quick. In brief, all I want to say is that, obviously, you have to have some kind of defining line, but I think that line should be more of the center of a gradient rather than an absolute point, just my opinion. In other words, the pre-warp, but I mean, they're at this point and they're advanced at this point. They don't have warp tech, but they do have some understanding. They've already got radio contact with the races, you know, sure, right? But if they're past warp tech and they're nowhere near ready for galactic society, right? Anyways, <clears throat> I love the amount of prep work. As I mentioned, this is one of the things I find fascinating about this, the amount of effort and time and resources and personnel that the Federation throws at first contact scenarios. Because that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because let's be honest, there's really only a couple of ways that a galactic society, uh, let me take that back, a galactic power, a nation, can really approach a first contact scenario. They could approach it from the conquer from within approach, which is of course what you know, Kroll is afraid of in this case. 
You can do that in Stellaris. You can approach it as the, ooh, piece of candy, and conquer it from without approach, which you can also do in Stellaris. Or you can approach it from the, let's just keep an eye on them and watch them develop. And then once they, once they finally reach out, we'll go ahead and reach out to them and see what they got, which you can also do in Stellaris. Have you played Stellaris lately? Stellaris. I have not. It's, it was just something that occurred to me. Because there really are not that many options when it comes to a less developed society. A society that isn't yet part of the galactic community. I've talked about this concept a few times over of Bajor, which effectively wasn't part of the galactic community outside of the occupation and the, the horrific mess that that was. And then basically launched into galactic society effectively for the first time in the wake of the occupation. And Everyone was aware of Bajorans, and Bajorans are aware of everyone else, but for the most part, they were newbies on the block, and that caused a lot of the issues over in Deep Space Nine. Good issues, well-developed issues, but issues nonetheless, which again gets across the point. All of the prep work, all of the effort, why wouldn't you put this much effort into it? Even if you were a conquering race, why wouldn't you? Because if you're a conquering race that has a brain, you want to make sure that you know the target well enough in order to be able to sublimate, control, or subjugate them. If you were a conquering race who is less evil, and in other words, an expansionist, non-conquerist race, which I know sounds like a weird thing, but bear me out here, then you want to approach them in a way that basically is offering this as a mutually beneficial thing. You join us, we give you this, we get you, blah, blah, blah. And of course, if you were the Federation, you just want to be there when everybody enters out into the Galactic Society because, well... There's a lot of other options, and none of them are really quite as good. Imagine if for a moment the Ferengi found these people first after their warp tests. Just a thought. But if I could segue for just a moment. I know you hate it when I do that. The, uh, one of the things I always loved was the idea of someone was first out to space, right? That's true in most science fiction. And usually the first person to go out there doesn't have anyone there. One of the things I always loved to do in Spore, actually, but also in Stellaris, was the idea of being beneficial and helpful and kind and uplifting people. As, not, uplifting is the wrong word, sorry, because that's the main something specific in context. Just being there, being the helper, the helping hand for other races when they finally made their trek to the stars. To be the aid, the support, the, 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 the helper, the friend that we never had, in other words. And I always liked playing that. And if I could be so bold, the idea for that kind of came from the Federation. Now, we could talk all sorts of, of circles around how insidious or fascist that the Federation actually is. But ultimately, let's be honest, the Federation are as close to the good guys as it gets within Star Trek when it comes to an overall national aggregate. Obviously, they are not all good, nor are they all you know, particularly nice or kind or, or, or beneficial or uh, care about others or whatever you want to call that. But as an organization, the Federation does clearly have a bit of a mandate for trying to assist other races, especially when it comes to taking their first steps into galactic society. So I like this. I like this. The, the, the people who've been here for years studying and examining, uh, going through their music and their entertainment, as a quick aside, I want you to imagine for a moment if the only intel they had was from music and entertainment, just picture what kind of a, an image an alien race would get of us based on, well, the Internet's too vast to really quantify, so let's rewind time a few decades and just go off of television and, and radio, for example. What kind of picture would you get off of that? Anyways. <clears throat> now, I also like, so getting back to the points, Picard mentions to, uh, what's her name, Miranda? Marista? Marista. Uh, about the fact that they've had spies amongst them for years. Now, he is hesitant to admit this. Again, that makes perfect sense. Uh, 
Because Picard is in the unenviable position of admitting that I have been spying on you for years, but don't worry, it's for benevolent purposes. Now, we know it is. It is for legitimately benevolent purposes. And let's be honest about that. I, I feel like I just talked about this last episode. Intel. Intel is important, right? Having proper intelligence is, is the best approach to peace, to being able to know exactly how to deal with things, right? Ergo, knowing how these people are and work and function is the best possible way to, to work with, coordinate, and interact with them. There's just too many alien cultures and societies and possibilities for things to go wrong. Picard himself mentions the most obvious situation where it went wrong, the Klingons, right? The Klingon War, the thing Discovery was trying to cover. <laughs> I shouldn't say that way. That sounds disparaging. The thing that Discovery covered just didn't show as much of the war as I would have liked, but whatever, I'm just getting off topic. Point being... It's understandable. You want that kind of intel, and sometimes you need people on the ground who are going to actually be able to interact with individuals to see how people... I mean, you, you get all sorts of data and reports, but someone who's actually been there can tell you how they feel and how they act and get a bit of public opinion is always going to be more important when it comes to this kind of societal upheaval because, let's be honest, the sudden uh, introduction of the fact that alien races not only exist but are commonplace and everywhere is going to be a societal upheaval one way or the other. If we suddenly found out that you go right outside the Oort cloud and there's just dozens, hundreds of races out there that we have somehow missed, that would be a game changer in more ways than one. So I like the way that they, they approach, they, they dance around this spying thing. And the funny thing, though, is Marista insists that they not tell the Chancellor. Picard goes along with that, and later on that causes issues. In fact, it, it causes significant issues. I'm pretty sure that if he had mentioned this to the Chancellor up front, things might have been different. Not because it is necessarily the best thing to be totally honest, because it isn't, but instead because of the fact that the, from my own reading on Durkin, which again, George does a great portrayal of the role, is that he is someone who should be, you should be honest with. You shouldn't approach, he's a chancellor of an entire world. He's been playing politics his entire life. This is someone you need to, to shoot straight with rather than just kind of, ah, you know, I don't know. He says as much, actually, to Picard. You know, I'm used to diplomatic speech, and Picard's like, yeah, I'm sure you are. And yet Picard really does effectively win the man over by being honest with him, totally and forthrightly. I love Picard in this episode, by the way. Uh, Patrick Stewart, of course, amazing actor. But he portrays his entire role with such open honesty that it, it just sells it. The wine, by the way. The wine is so great. It's actually Robert's wine from back in Family. Nice continuity touch there. Robert actually asked him, you know, don't, don't drink that alone. He didn't. <laughs> Anywho, trust requires time and experience. I wrote that quote down because it's a wonderful quote, and it's true. This is the inherent flaw, nature and danger of a first contact situation. This is why I brought up the spying thing. No matter what. There is no way for Picard to prove that his intentions are benevolent. Now, we know they are because we have trust, the advantage of time and experience of knowing how the Federation works and how Starfleet works. They have none of that. They just met these people. And again, I, I, that's why dancing around the spine topic is so obvious of a thing to do. Because he has, this is what I mentioned earlier, Picard has no actual method of proving his intentions. None. The only way to do that is to consistently show it over time. But right here, right at the beginning of relations, he has no tools in his arsenal. Yes, we know you, we've been spying on you for years, and we've finally come to have first contact with you. Now, he can explain all the logic and reasoning, but he still has a doom ship in orbit, which could probably crack that planet in half, given the right 
time. Yes? Now, another thing that I really enjoy is they have this continuous fear of conquest. Now, I briefly talked about this, but I, I wanted to mention this here because this ties in both points I just mentioned. Picard really has no way of proving his benevolent intentions, and a conquest through, you know, infiltration is, you know, a cheaper, easier method of conquest rather than sending in the troops, right? And, let's be 100% honest, it usually tends to work out better. This is, of course, with regards to science fiction. I'm not going to touch real-life examples of that. What I mean by that is... Well, again, to go to the Stellaris example, what's going to work out more? Chikong, chikong, chikong. And then spending time and effort trying to get them on your side, or on leaving uh, troops there. Or spending the time and effort and resources, which will take longer, to slowly make them like you and think like you to the point where it gets to the point where they just basically open up the doors like, hey, and want to join. You could uh, debate which of those is more morally acceptable because there's certainly a lot that could be said about both topics there. But the point is, if the Federation was a insidious conquering power, as opposed to a you know, militarily conquering power, there's really not a whole lot that could actually be done to dissuade the Chancellor from the truth of that. That being said, if they were trying the insidious route, Flat out openly admitting, uh, walking up and talking to them is probably the best piece of evidence that they're not. Which itself is not concrete. I want to be clear about that. That could still be argued. But if you're doing that kind of a thing, you usually don't really show your hand until the populace is ready to, to swing towards you, or the, or the leadership is willing to swing towards you. And these people are definitely not. That's the point. <laughs> so, just, just food for thought. I found the whole thing fascinating. Now... Then we get to the problem. Um, so, Riker has sex with one of the... God, I can't even say it straight. It's being played for comedy. And I know Sci-Fi Debris commented on this. I haven't seen his episode on this in forever, though. I, I just remember he commenting on this and how much he, it bothered him that this unpleasant experience was being played, played for comedy. I don't... I, I, I don't get why that was thrown in. I'm not saying you have to keep sex out of it. This actually has a lot of legitimate potential. In fact, you could probably do an entire episode based on just this topic. And, in fact, Star Trek has. But the idea of, you know, reach, romantically getting involved, even in a purely physical way, with an alien race like this, is kind of a thing. And it's something that needs to be addressed, if we're being 100% honest. Uh, never mind the possibilities of breeding. As has been shown many times, physical, chemical interactions are not necessarily the only uh, impetus, the only mandated reason for romantic entanglements. There are people in, in fiction, in science fiction, who will get together who lack the ability to have children and either will adopt or simply accept that they can't have, right? This, this is a thing. This is a concept. So there's a lot they could have done with this, but instead it's basically just a one-off gag, and I think that's what bothers me about it. In an otherwise very serious, dramatic, well-done, in-depth, fleshed-out, multi-dimensional episode, there's just all of a sudden this surface-level gag, and then it moves on. And I don't like how they kind of portray her enamoration with, with the alien to be a joke. I know that sounds strange, and I don't want to be one of those people who takes offense at everything, but all I'm going to say is... How many people do you know, personally, who would be enamored with the idea of physical intimacy with an alien? <laughs> I mean, right? 
This has been a thing since we started envisioning science fiction characters and aliens in general here on Earth. Never mind some more extreme examples like, say, the Asari over in Mass Effect who are basically just women. I mean, I know that's actually kind of an inaccurate statement given what we're talking about here, but you get my point. <laughs> Anyways. This brings me to the big problem. Riker. Riker is, in my opinion, the biggest flaw of this episode. Not the actor. Jonathan Frakes is fine, and not even his portrayal. But no, the fact is, every episode has to have some kind of dilemma, some crisis or threat. Now, in this episode, I wrote down a note here, and it said, why is the Riker thing an issue? Because it aggravated the ever-living crap out of me that they don't just scan for the humans on the planet and beam up the human on the planet. Now... You might be like, well, which human? Because there's more than one human, which is very possible. But you can't tell me they can't figure out which human is anywhere near the capital or in a hospital. They obviously are keeping very careful tabs on these people to be able to, for example, beam into the chancellor's office on time or to beam into the, the, the minister of space when she was alone and had just been going through this thing, right? They're obviously keeping very careful tabs on these people. Why can't they find a human? This, I'm sorry to bring this up yet again. And I know I'll bring this up in the future, but it always irritates me when, when writers and structure just seem to presume that the only way they can find someone is if they have their comm badge on them. You know what I'm talking about, right? How many times has someone gone, you know, basically taken their comm badge off to stay hidden? <sighs> Anyways, so I, was, so I started writing in. As soon as I wrote that down, the answer just came to me. Well, the reason finding him isn't the point is because even if they find him, they'd have to beam him out of a hospital after having been checked in. That's the issue, right? Well, no. The episode portrays this as if they can't find Riker, and Riker is in deadly danger. And I dislike both of those points. Because think about it for a second. Let's say they scan and find Riker, and he's right there, and he's been admitted to a hospital. What do they do? Do they just beam him up? How do they deal with the fallout from that? How do they deal with people who have just seen this person who they suspect for being an alien who just suddenly vanishes? That's going to make things worse, not better. Now this shifts the threat from a more personal Rikers in danger to a more larger scale thing, basically threatening the mission, threatening the reason they're there, threatening the first contact itself. In my mind, that works a lot better. That's just my opinion. And as ever, I'm curious to your guys' opinion. And then I started thinking about this more and more, because they just keep framing this over and over about they just can't find Riker. What are we going to do? But the thing is, both perspectives would... See, the first problem is we can't find Riker, and you know we don't know he's an alien. But then we can't find Riker, and we know he's an alien. In the actual episode, the first threat is the fact that he's been discovered and he's injured, and the second threat is that he's been discovered and he's in serious threat, like he's on the verge of death, is, is what they actually say. I think we should take these two chunks of the threat here and divest them completely from Riker's personal danger. You know, he's injured, of course, but you know, he's, got, he's got a bruise or something, or maybe some, some cuts or some internal bleeding. Nothing, okay, internal bleeding can be serious, but nothing really serious, right? Instead, make the first half of the threat be, we don't want to be discovered. We don't want to escalate the situation. And the second half be, we don't want to make our relations with these people worse. Because in the first half, think about this for a second. In the first half, they, they haven't introduced themselves to the chancel. They haven't, gone they haven't gone loud yet. Nobody knows they're here. Beaming them out could cause a huge hassle and problem. And there's just too many issues with dealing with that. Then they go loud. They admit to the Chancellor they're here, they admit that Riker's there, they admit that the spies are there. 
And you remember, until the woman convinced him, until Marista convinced him, uh, Bur uh, Durkin was going to just keep him here and interrogate him, then let him go, right? So in other words, now we have everything in our capability to rescue him, but if we do, we risk severely and possibly permanently damaging relations with the head of state, and thus with the state itself. Thus the threat goes from being Riker's about to die to we can't just beam him out because if we do, we have just torpedoed this entire mission. Years of work, lots of investment, everything I talked about. Never mind what this might do to these people. Even ignoring our personal investment in the crew and the Federation and their mission, think about what it would do to these people to find out that aliens showed up and just kind of took one of their people back who was one amongst us. Because I guarantee you that's how that story would be spread if he was taken by force, so to speak. Now, when I say force, I mean just beaming him up. It's the same thing. Taken without consent would be what this means here. Right? I think that threat would have worked much better and would have kept Riker involved and wouldn't have changed the, the tempo or, or pace of the episode in any way, shape, or form. My opinion. Because I never like to critique without giving my own possibilities how you could do it al alternatively. I want to talk about familiarity effect, because that's one of the last things I want to talk about here. I mentioned how they took a lot of time and effort developing the sets and the props. For those of you not familiar with it, it's on the Lorium site. Um, but familiarity effect basically means the more familiar you, the audience, the consumer, are with something, the more you're going to be inclined to like it, to put, to put it simply. So what they did was they did a lot of deliberate familiarity effect with everything they did here, with the presentation of these people, specifically so that we would look at it as if we are they. That's the whole point, really. That's why the episode works. What if that was us and the Federation and the Starfleet ship showing up were the aliens? And that's why this shift in perspective matters so much, because now we can relate. Now we can believe them. Now we can understand them. And I feel like the reason I mentioned this so far down into my notes rather than right at the beginning is because there's a bit where the doctor, the, the, the main doctor, says, I made an oath to do no harm. Now, that's just kind of a slid under the rug thing. But we have that in real life as well as in fiction. You know, that, that whole Hippocratic oath, the whole... Uh, did I say Hippocratic? <laughs> the whole oath that we go through, that medical professions go, professionals go through in real life as well as in fiction to do no harm, to help, to aid, to... to, to you know, heal. The fact that they have that too was a very precise and deliberate intention, near as I can tell, to try and add more to that familiarity effect so that we see that they too have ideas and concepts similar to us in addition to looking like this could just be happening downtown. That's another reason why they used a, a normal hospital set and then just touched it up a little bit. Keeping it just on this side of looking normal without looking too normal. I think they did a great job, and I just want to give huge praise to Bull, who was spearheading this whole operation, and the props and set masters who really worked on that. Huge, huge credit, really. Picard admits that the first contact policy is a flawed one. I like that. Because first contact should be incredibly dangerous and important and, and, and an impacting moment for the contactor and the contactees. And I really think that showing that this is the best we've got is probably one of the, the, the best things this episode does from a macroscopic perspective, from the idea of the, the Federation as a whole. The idea that, yeah, this leads to some problems, but by God, it's, what's the alternative, you know? 
that we try to work through the situation as smoothly and carefully as we can and be as precise and as subtle and as, and as understated as possible because it's the best we got. We're not perfect. And I like that. Funnily enough, Durkin likes that too. I'm glad you're a man who makes mistakes. So Durkin makes his final decision. I actually already brought this up. I don't have much else to add to it. Again, I would love to hear your thoughts on if you think it was the correct decision or not. What I find curious, though, Picard mentions we might not back, be back in his, her lifetime. And we never hear from these people again because it's a Star Trek. But what I actually wonder is how long it really would or does, I suppose, take for these people to get to a point where they feel more accepting and embracing of the idea of outside contact with, with beyond their planet. I'm really curious about that. Unfortunately, we'll never know. <laughs> but I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time, guys.